The title of the sermon this evening is Remember to Extol God's Work. Remember to Extol God's Work. And that is both a reminder of our uh, commission, our great commission to go to all nations and make disciples uh, in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey uh, all of God's commandments. Uh, It's a reminder to be about that work, but it's also in the context of Job, there is a reminder to be about extolling God, thanking God, praising God in whatever situation we find ourselves in. It's not just when we feel ready. It's not just when conditions are amenable to going and uh, witnessing to God. In every situation, we are called to make much of Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Lord. Uh, Books have been written, for example, on uh, making your cancer count. Uh, If you've been afflicted with that terrible disease, how do you make that count for Jesus? How do you uh, recognise God's hand in that situation? Now that's a challenge. That's a huge challenge. That is countercultural. That is something which only God can do. And so we should pray, shouldn't we, for such inspiration and for such energy. Let's remember to extol God's work. I hope that you're being blessed by the wisdom and the observations of Job's friend Elihu. We've been hearing now uh, from him for several weeks. Um, One commentary I consulted refers to chapters 36 and 37 as Elihu's fourth speech, uh, because the topic has now shifted from the rebukes that we heard earlier, uh, the rebuke to Job's older friends in their inability to restrain Job and provide him wise counsel, and then uh, Elihu's rebuke of Job himself. Um, Elihu feels that Job has been prideful and disrespectful before God. Uh, even uh, hinting perhaps that he might be more righteous than God. Surely not. And as we have seen, this is, this is not the case. And yet, in Job's introspection, he has certainly come close to disrespecting God, certainly of being impatient in demanding that God swiftly vindicate him from his sufferings and his afflictions. Here in uh, chapter 36 and into 37, uh, Elihu now strikes a more relaxed and compassionate tone. Perhaps Elihu realises that he's poured more scorn out than he intended. He is human after all. Perhaps he wasn't gracious enough to Job. Now Elihu seeks to point Job to the sovereign purposes of God in making use of discipline for our benefit as God protectively watches over the righteous, desiring that none of his chosen people should perish. After all, the sign of the truly righteous is in how they respond to these loving corrections from God. Will they respond positively to God's rod of discipline? Or will we kick back? If we respond positively... 
we will surely be restored. We will surely behold divine splendour, marvelling at his grace. If not, should we continue in our transgressions, we will surely die. All the while through this next section of his address, Elihu's compassion is seen in the rhetorical questions that he asks as he seeks to persuade Job and the reader to seek and even trust God. We are once again faced with challenges ourselves. Does God owe us a certain quality of life? Should God make our way smooth and our life full of health and plenty? What have we done? Who are we to deserve such treatment? Although God grants each of us numerous blessings, especially here in the wealthy West, have we recognised that, and more importantly, have we recognised God's greatness, his beauty and his worth? Let's read together from Job 36. Elihu continued, Bear with me a little longer, and I will show you that there is more to be said on God's behalf. I get my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe justice to my maker. Be assured that my words are not false. One perfect in knowledge is with you. God is mighty, but does not despise men. He is mighty and firm in his purpose. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their rights. He does not take his eyes off the righteous. He enthrones them with kings and exalts them forever. But if men are bound in chains, held fast by cords of affliction, he tells them what they have done, that they have sinned arrogantly. He makes them listen to correction and commands them to repent of their evil. If they obey and serve him, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. But if they do not listen, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart harbour resentment. Even when he fetters them, they do not cry for help. They die in their youth, among male prostitutes of the shrines. But those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. He is wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place free from restriction, to the comfort of your table laden with choice food. But now you are laden with the judgment due to the wicked. Judgment and justice have taken hold of you. Be careful that no one entices you by riches, do not let a large bribe turn you aside. Would your wealth or even all your mighty efforts sustain you so you would not be in distress? Do not long for the night to drag people away from their homes. Beware of turning to evil, which you seem to prefer to affliction. God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed his ways for him or said to him, you have done wrong? Remember to extol his work, which men have praised in song. 
All mankind has seen it. Men gaze on it from afar. How great is God beyond our understanding. The number of his years is past finding out. He draws up the drops of water which distill as rain to the streams. The clouds pour down their moisture and abundant showers fall on mankind. Who can understand how he spreads out the clouds, how he thunders from his pavilion? See how he scatters his lightning about him, bathing the depths of the sea. This is the way he governs the nations and provides food in abundance. He fills his hands with lightning, commands it to strike its mark. His thunder announces the coming storm. Even the cattle make known its approach. May our gracious Lord grant us understanding and wisdom, help so that we might be built up by these words. If you're taking notes this evening, and I've got three A's. This is a triple A sermon for you this evening. Firstly, affliction. Secondly, arrogance and anger. And finally, ascription. Ascription. You may have heard the word ascribe before. Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. Well, that's what that last point, ascription, is all about. Are we ascribing to God what he is due? Firstly, affliction. Secondly, arrogance and anger. And thirdly, ascription. Affliction, first of all then. As we're told by Elihu, uh, affliction is designed to awaken us to our uh, wrongdoing, to draw us to God, to fling us on his mercy. After all, the Lord our God intends good where others, the powers of darkness and our human enemies, intend harm. Remember it was Job's adversary, Satan, who unjustly sought to afflict Job with the intention that Job would would curse God and turn against him. God intends for the afflictions poured out on Job by Satan to bring about transformation. The blameless man who so reverently worshipped God, who ordered his household and dedicates everything to God, will surely respond in determined and thankful faith, offering thanksgiving and praise, for the sake of God's great name, despite the circumstances and trials he is enduring, won't he? What about us? When difficulty and worries mount for us, is our faith shown to have substance and merit? Is our confession of any use to us when our job is on the line, when our mortgage payments have become unmanageable, when our marriage partner no longer shows us affection, or when someone close to us falls ill, what do we do then? Do we suppose that God has abandoned us, that he has forgotten all about us, or that he is a neglectful God, delighting in our misfortune? This is one of the most common objections to Uh, God and belief among unbelievers and agnostics out in the world. What about all the suffering in the world, they say? 
well, whose world is this in the first place? Should the world's maker have a say in the purpose for which he made it? Have we ascribed greatness to our maker? Do we recognise the glory of creation and praise him for the joy and privilege of life? When we realise that we are not the centre of the universe, as we each must do, somewhere around the age of two, hopefully, once we realise that we have a responsibility to be productive and helpful people, showing love and compassion to others because we hope to receive the same too, when our eyes have been opened to see that all is not right with us, that we need help from the gardener to grow healthily, then we can stand on our feet, acknowledging with humility our full dependence on God. We can never be wise without him. We can never pursue righteousness or enduring purpose without the inspiration and direction of the Lord our God. Where is God our maker? As Elihu exhorted us to ask in chapter 35. The sad truth is that we have all turned our own way. We have all decided that we, not God, no best for us. We have permitted our own sinful, corrupted desires, the desires of our sin-sick hearts, to lead us astray. And the first symptom of this is an absence of praise, a failure to extol the work of the Lord, the work which alone can save and steer us into blessedness. So, broadly speaking, there are two reactions to affliction when it comes. And remember, God uses affliction to snap us out of our slumber, out of our self-satisfaction, out of our satisfaction at second best. There are two reactions to that affliction. Either arrogance and anger that we'll look at next, taking offence at what has happened to us, or ascription of praise to God. We can rightly ascribe glory to God in his sovereignty, recognising his supreme right to decide our fate and our disciplining when we need to be shaped and moulded. Will we be won over by God's wondrous grace, submitting to him as a child to their loving father, trusting that he has our best interest at heart? I hope we will. Let's look at the first reaction then, arrogance and anger. Friends, there's no such thing as neutrality. In the course of our lives, we soon begin to display where our allegiance lies. Are we trusting in God? Or are we trusting in our own resources? The problem then for us is that if we trust in what we have, what happens when those things run out? Anyone can demonstrate ease and benevolence when they are overflowing with surplus blessings. You see, this world, the things that we can see all around us, the Bible calls them the work of God's hands. They're not simply there for our pleasure. 
They are not earned by us because we are innately due them. We do not belong to ourselves, whether or not we acknowledge God. Even if we acknowledge God, has that acknowledgement come from a place of submission to him? Or simply a tradition that pays lip service? Something like the kind of faith demonstrated by Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Zophar and Bildad. You see, as Elihu wants Job and everyone listening to gather... The Lord God is supreme. He is sovereign, ordaining whatever comes to pass in order to exalt his name. To lovingly correct wandering sinners. Those he is, per- he is purchasing and transforming for his purposes. And to bring judgment upon the wicked. Those who have exhausted every opportunity to repent and turn away from sin. As human beings, our natural response to affliction is to recoil in horror, to express dismay and dissatisfaction, to demand a refund, to speak to the manager, rarely with a readiness to accept the small print that makes clear it was our free choice to make the purchase. We knew the limitations of the contract, We knew that one day the time would come to make the final payment or face repossession. But as human beings, we have a terrible obsession with our own worth. We feel as if we're losing out if we do not have control over our lives. Just like our first parents, we see that the fruit of control, of the knowledge of good and evil, is desirable for eating that somehow it will refresh us more than obedience to God will ever do. And so we take, we run, and we hide. Our arrogance is often astounding. And in our frustration of being caught, we lash out at anyone and everyone else. The person next to us for giving us the fruit, or the serpent for suggesting it in the first place when all the while we knew that our disobedience had a price. We refuse to pay in our arrogance. Like a small child, we stamp our feet and we shake our fists. Have we done the same, even as adults? Have we retreated into a place of self-importance, digging in our heels and refusing to take the first step? when in reality God has bridged the gap already and stands ready like the prodigal father with arms open wide to welcome us home. And so is anything standing in your way from being reconciled to your father God? Has any affliction or misfortune happened to you that you struggle to accept? Dear friend, Let us go home together and offer glad praise for all our Lord has done and all he yet will do to heal us and to satisfy us down to the deepest recesses of our souls. Let us not reject his grace. Let us ascribe every 
praise and glory to his wondrous name. My final point, the scripture. We've previously observed that Elihu himself, in fact, any human speaker in these matters, will most likely at some point sound arrogant. Because the truth is, God alone is supreme. God alone is perfect and worthy of praise. And so when we articulate these points about God and God's instruction and rebuke, it's easy for us to sound as if we consider ourselves somehow perfect, somehow all-knowing. Who is Pastor Ben to point out our faults? Why doesn't he consider himself first before speaking to us? Well, of course, this is absolutely understandable. But please understand this. I and any other preacher who's faithfully opening God's word does not bring any word from God without having engaged in a good dose of self-scrutiny first. In verse 4 of chapter 36, Elihu declares, For my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. How conceited we might be tempted to think. Who does Elihu think he is? But if Elihu is speaking as a pastor, speaking prophetically the vigorous word of God himself, then surely he is right. If God is instructing and making known his word, then we have access to perfect knowledge. Because God knows all things, and he is perfect. And the testimony of Elihu and the whole of scripture and even nature all around us, as Elihu testifies, is that God is to be praised continually and forever. Psalm 145 verse 10 says, All God's works shall give thanks to him. And this is Elihu's message. And so God's message to us this evening. Whatever the circumstances we find ourselves in, and Job found himself in dire circumstances. From this morning's message in Romans 7, we know we, know we find ourselves in a battle. Life should be tiring. Life should be frustrating. Is often imperfect. Why? Because the purpose of this life is to test, refine, and mould us imperfect people into better people. To transform us from being arrogant and angry people to being humble, patient and kind people. People who are fully dependent on the grace of Almighty God. Whether they've lost loved ones, whether life has been one series of mistakes and misfortune, whether we've attained to our, our ambitions, hopes and dreams or not, the Lord our God would have us cultivate new desires, a new hope and a richer life. In fact, the only life with any eternal significance. Because only he can deliver that to us. Sooner or later, because of sin, because of our arrogance and rebellion, death comes to us. Even upright men like Job 
cannot but make much of themselves or their predicament because they, we, have all failed our eternally perfect and holy God. Our imperfections and offences grieve him. And so if he is to come to our rescue, if we are to become useful instruments, he must purify us, removing the dross and the imperfections which would otherwise make us worthless, only fit for the fire. God instead delivers the afflicted by their affliction. Verse 15 says Elihu, he works through these afflictions to deliver us. The very sufferings and misfortunes we think are plaguing us and ruining our lives will actually deliver us. Because otherwise we are enslaved to cult prostitutes, verse 14 tells us. We are in bondage to idolatry, refusing to properly worship the God who made us, instead preferring to make ourselves and other human beings into objects of worship, no matter how religious we might be. The message of hope in the Christian gospel is that God delivers the afflicted by afflicting his son, Jesus. But the very same message makes it crystal clear that the Christian life is one of affliction and discipline. God disciplines those he loves. And he fills up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in those who belong to Christ, says Paul. Not that there is anything lacking in Christ's sacrifice. But for us, all those who are called out of this world to honour the name of Christ, to extol his works, we will all be conformed to his image. We will all be disciplined sons and daughters. Dear friend, it's not if, but when. What will you do when affliction comes? Will you shake your fist, stamp your feet and demand that God makes things right? We know, don't we, that he shall make all things new. That he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death, as it says in Revelation 21. No more loss. And all the frustrations and limitations of this life will be no more. Consumed and overwhelmed by his wondrous grace we will be taken to a place where there is no more distress no more cramping and with tables full of fatness as it says in verse 16 if we listen to god to his still small voice we will complete our days in prosperity and our years in pleasantness it says in verse 11 Unlimited days, unlimited years of blessing in the presence of God. So let us be reminded of God's greatness. Let us be captivated by his wondrous works. Let us recognise his right to determine the events of history. Even those events that impinge on our lives, pleasant or unpleasant. 
Let us trust him and take his hand. Because his desire in the knowledge, remember, of all things. Verse 4. His desire is to pay our ransom. Verse 18. To teach us. Verse 22. And for us to know him. Verse 26. And to know him eternally. Have you realised this yet? Or are you intent to cling to your rights? Let's bow our heads in prayer.